This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LESSDUMB at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 37. I want you to think about your dream because I'm in a room full of dreamers. Think about your dream right now. We've got to dream. Dream big. We've all got to know where we want to go and we've all got to be able to see ourselves where we want to be. But always remember that a dream without a clear plan of how you're going to realize that dream, that's simple. I think the biggest disability that we have as human beings is unbelief. Everything starts with a vision, and a man without vision dies. I'm not teaching you and something really new here today. I just want to remind you of what your soul knows. You've got to change, you've got to improve, and you've got to go through a simple process fundamentally to make that progress. First step, vision that's compelling. Second step, make sure that there's strong enough reasons to follow through. Thing I have learned, I don't do counseling, but I talk with a lot of people who do in psychology, psychiatry, and the ministry. And they tell me that everybody who comes to you with a problem are not necessarily looking for a solution. I couldn't understand that for a long time. Why do they bring you a problem if they don't want to solve it? Well, I can tell you why. They want to tell you about it, you about it, you about it, you about it, and you about it. And if you foul up the deal and solve the problem, they can't tell you again, you again. They want the attention that goes with the problem. And every company just about it has that kind of an individual. They want the attention that goes with griping and... Uh, and are probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're probably going to find out as you go out there that you're not going to amount Jack Squat! <laughs> You're gonna end up eating a steady diet of government cheese and living in a van down by the river. What you just heard, with the exception of that Chris Farley bit from Saturday Night Live, were real motivational speakers delivering their real motivational messages to real people who were eager to hear those messages. And you can sample many, many of these people on YouTube. These, in particular, these were bits from Tony Robbins, uh, Les Brown, Nick Vujicic, uh, Susie Wolf, and Zig Ziglar, who I'm sure you have at least heard of before. Uh, probably, if you're like me, you've seen quotes from Zig Ziglar on, on people's desks in your professional life. But there are hundreds more of these people. It's quite an industry. 
And the there are people who draw in thousands of people in their audiences and they have dates booked years in advance. And there are people who are just starting out with new twists and new approaches to this motivational speaking game. But you can make a living. You can be you can be a person who all you do every day is go out and professionally motivate people. Now, I, I remember seeing speakers like this in junior high, some former inmates who had turned their lives around um, and they scared all of us and then, then told us, you know, that we should go for our dreams and not do what they did. And, uh, I remember a, uh, a really wealthy person who had graduated from our school years ago and, and, you know, they came and said, you can be like me. And there were several others. And you may have seen people like this, um, visit your workplace or speak at a conference for your company. It's a big business giving lectures designed to make people feel at least temporarily motivated to get out there and kick life in the small of its back and grab it from behind and squeeze it until it cries, uncle. Of course, motivation isn't exactly that simple, at least scientifically speaking. I mean, it's not to say that these sorts of speeches don't motivate people or inspire them or make them think about their own path in life and question it, or that these speeches aren't good and then spread good things out into the world. But motivation itself and the drives that influence us to do the things that we do, they're often not as overt as messages delivered from a stage. We would like to think that we are in control and that we choose to follow advice or that we choose to take action after logically, rationally, through our own volition, absorbing a new perspective or a new bit of information. But usually, well, usually it's just, it's just a lot more complicated than that. And we are often a lot less conscious that it is happening. So what actually motivates us, not just for a short period of time, but daily, continuously? What is the basis of our drives that keep us going? And how can we use what we know about that stuff to build better institutions, to build better jobs, to build better lives? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We explore another topic in the realm of self-delusion, the psychology and the neuroscience of decision-making, of judgment, of reasoning itself. And on this episode, we're going to talk about motivation. We're going to talk about drives, the antecedents of our behavior, as they would say in psychology. And our guest today is Daniel Pink, who wrote the book, drive and you've probably seen his lectures online you've probably read some of his work his book is amazing his lectures are really really cool and he's really changed the way a lot of businesses run by revealing to them that science knows a lot about how people are motivated and it has nothing to do with the way that we're actually trying to motivate people and he now has a new television show coming out on uh, the National Geographic channel in which he takes this sort of approach to all sorts of other things out there in the in our everyday lives, whether it's airports or littering or uh, speeding and all these other things. He shows uh, the audience in this television show how, to, how we can alter human behavior, how we can alter the way crowds and uh, groups of people do things simply by altering a little, a little thing over here, a little thing over there and uh, changing what will then motivate people to behave in a different way. We'll talk to him all about that in a minute. But first, I would like to uh, go back to what we were saying about motivational speakers and, and motivation itself and how it's not always obvious, that we don't always choose the things that uh, give us our motivation and our drives to do the things that we do. 
I'm going to read to you a uh, an excerpt from "You Are Now Last Dumb," my second book, and because I there's a story in there, there's a there's a study that I found that I talk about in there that it it pops in my head all of the time, especially when we talk about this sort of thing. And uh, what I think is is great about this study and the the history of this sort of research is that it really illustrates how we we change the way we uh, live our lives and we choose different paths, oftentimes because of uh, situations and things that have affected us that we really don't have a, a strong conscious awareness of. And um, in, in psychology, there's sort of these, uh, there's this gradient. And on one side, there is insufficient justification. And on the other side is over justification. And uh, both can really alter your behavior. And you're thinking this excerpt is about the over justification effect. Psychologists Mark Lepper, Daniel Green, and Richard Nismet, they wondered in 1973 if thinking about thinking played a bigger role than the behaviorists, who were the dominant thinkers in psychology of the day, suggested. In their book, The Hidden Costs of Reward, they detail one experiment in particular that helped pull psychology out from under what they called B.F. Skinner's, quote, long shadow. So, it's 1973, and Leper, Green, and Nisbet, they are meeting with teachers of a preschool class. And this is the sort of class that generates a steady output of macaroni art and paper bag vests. And they arrange for these children to have a period of free time in which the tots could just choose from a variety of fun activities. But meanwhile, the psychologist would watch from behind a one-way mirror and take notes. And the teachers, they agreed to this, and the psychologists... They watched, and to proceed, they needed children with a natural affinity for art. So, as the kids played, the scientists searched for the ones who gravitated toward drawing and coloring activities. And once they had identified these artists out of all of the group, the scientists then watched them during free time and measured their participation and interest in drawing for later comparison. They then divided these children into three different groups— they offered group A a glittering certificate of awesomeness if, if the artists in that group drew during the next fun time. They then offered group B nothing, but if those kids happened to draw, they would then receive an unexpected certificate of awesomeness, identical to the one received by group A. And group C, they were told nothing ahead of time, and they also did not receive any prizes if they actually drew or colored or anything like that. So the scientist then watched to see how these kids performed during a series of playtimes over three days. They awarded the prizes just as they had promised. And then they stopped all observation and left and they waited two weeks and then they came back. And when they returned, the researchers watched as the children faced the same choice as before, the same choice that they had before this whole experiment ever began. So you have three groups. They've had three different experiences. They have many fun activities to choose from. How do you think their feelings changed? Well, <laughs> group B and group C did not change at all. They went to the art supplies and they created monsters and mountains and houses with curly hue smoke streams crawling out of rectangular chimneys with just as much joy as they had before they met the psychologists. 
Group A, though, did not. They were different people now. The children in Group A, quote, spent significantly less time, end quote, drawing than did the other groups, and they, quote, showed a significant decrease in interest in the activity, end quote, as compared to before the experiment. So why? Well, the children in Group A, they were swept up and overpowered, their joy perverted by the overjustification effect. The story that they told themselves wasn't the same story the other groups were telling themselves. So in psychology, self-perception theory says you, you observe your own behavior and then after the fact, you make up a story to explain it. And that story is sometimes close to the truth and sometimes it's just something nice that makes you feel better about being a person. For instance, you, you may remember in a previous episode, the Benjamin Franklin effect in which people were paid for turning wooden knobs round and round for an hour. Some were paid very well and some were paid very little, but both were asked to lie about their experience to a stranger and then rate the experience honestly. The people paid a pittance, they reported that the study was a blast, and the people paid well reported that it was awful. Subjects in both groups lied to the person who came in after them, but the people paid well, they had a justification, an extrinsic reward to fall back on. The other people had no safety net, no outside justification, so they invented one inside to keep from feeling icky and they found solace in an internal justification you know they thought you know it really was fun when you think about it and if you recall that's that's called the insufficient justification effect the yang to over justifications yin they told themselves stories that differed based on the size of their rewards and whether they felt extrinsically or intrinsically motivated you're, you're driven at the fundamental level in most everything you choose to do by either intrinsic or extrinsic goals. Intrinsic motivations, they come from within. Our guest today, Daniel Pink, he explains this in his excellent book, Drive. And those motivations often include, as he puts it, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. There are some things you do just because they fulfill you or they make you feel that you're becoming better at a task or that you're a master of your destiny or that you play a role in the grand scheme of things or that you are helping society in some way. Intrinsic rewards demonstrate to you and others the value of being you. They're blurry and difficult to quantify. Charted on a graph, they form long slopes stretching into infinity. You strive to become an amazing cellist or you volunteer in the campaign of an inspiring politician or you build the Starship Enterprise in Minecraft. Extrinsic motivations, they come from without. They're tangible baubles handed over for tangible deeds. They usually exist outside of you before you begin a task. And these sort of motivations include money and prizes and grades, or in the case of punishment, the promise of losing something that you like or acquiring something that you do not. Extrinsic motivations are easy to quantify and they can be demonstrated in bar graphs or tallied on a calculator. You, you work a double shift for overtime pay so that you can make rent. You put in the hours to become a doctor hoping your, your father will finally deliver the praise for which you long. You say no to the cheesecake so you can fit into those pants at the Christmas party. If you can admit to yourself that the reward is the only reason you are doing what you're doing, the sit-ups, the spreadsheet, the speed limit, it's probably extrinsic. Whether a reward is intrinsic or extrinsic helps determine the setting of your narrative. Or um, perhaps we could put it like this, the marketplace of your heart. The, the behavioral economist Dan O'Reilly, he writes in his book, Predictably Irrational, that you tend to unconsciously evaluate your behavior and, and that of others in terms of social norms or market norms. So if you help move 
a friend for free, it doesn't feel the same as helping move a friend for $50. It feels wonderful to slip into bed with your date after getting to know him and staying up one night making butterscotch crepes and talking about the differences and similarities between Breaking Bad and The Wire. But if after all of that, he tosses you a $100 bill and says, thanks, that was awesome, you will feel crushed by the terrible weight of market norms. Payments in terms of social norms are intrinsic and thus your narrative remains impervious to the overjustification effect. Those sorts of payments come as praise and respect, a feeling of mastery or camaraderie or love. Payments in terms of market norms are extrinsic and your story becomes vulnerable to overjustification. Marketplace payments come as something measurable and in turn they make your motivation measurable when before it was nebulous, up for interpretation and easy to rationalize. The children in the experiment who fell out of love with art did so not because they received a reward, but because of the deal they struck with the experimenters. After all, the children in group B got the same reward and kept their desire to draw. So it wasn't the surprise. It, it, it was the story. The story they told themselves about why they chose what they chose, why they did what they did. During the experiment, group C thought, I just drew this picture because I love to draw. And group B thought, I just got rewarded for doing something I love to do. But group A, they thought, I just drew this to win an award. And when all three groups were faced with the same activity, group A was faced with a metacognition, a question, a burden unknown to the other groups. These children asked themselves, why would they draw if there was no reward? Thinking about thinking, it changes things. Extrinsic rewards can steal your narrative. As Leper Green and Nisbet wrote, engagement in an activity of initial interest under conditions that make salient to the person the instrumentality of engagement in that activity as a means to some ulterior end may lead to decrements in subsequent intrinsic interest in the activity. And, end quote. So in other words, if you are offered a reward to do something you love and then you agree, you will later question whether you continue to do it for love or for the reward. So that's just a very small excerpt from the overjustification effect. It's a chapter in your analysis dumb and other things that go along with this idea. Uh, and we've talked about some of this in previous episodes are that, um, Daniel Kahneman and Stephen Deaton, they did a study once that showed that, um, once you make $75,000 a year in the United States, uh, you can't gain any more happiness from just money alone. Uh, and, and you can't have any higher salary and be any happier with your work. So, um, a person who makes a million dollars a year is no happier in their job because of the money than a person who makes $75,000 a year in America in, you know, the modern times in, in the 21st century. So, uh, and you know, you can adjust that a little bit depending on the region you live in. In the South, it has to be a little less in the North, a little more, but the, um, that's the general amount of money you need to make. And that what that means is that to gain any more, uh, happiness from what you do for a living, you have to have some other reward that comes from this. And as Daniel Pink writes about in Drive, uh, he says those rewards must be autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And we're going to talk all about that in just a second. Now, so this interview, it's it's a little bit about uh, his new TV show 
and uh, it's a little bit about his book Drive. So we're going to bounce back and forth in both of them. I think you really like this. Daniel Pink is a really fantastic uh, science communicator. Uh, he's sort of ta- taking psychology and neuroscience and and business and mushing it all together and explaining to people who run these things, who run our businesses, who are our bosses and our managers, trying to explain to them, this is how you should run things. So with that in mind, let's get to this interview. Who is Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink is a best-selling author with 20 years of experience studying and covering behavioral science. You can find him on Twitter at Daniel Pink. His books have been translated into 34 languages. He uh, is a very popular public speaker, uh, not a motivational speaker, but a public speaker who has uh, delivered more than 1,000 lectures to audiences in 36 countries. His TED Talk on the Science of Motivation is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks of all time with currently 11.7 million views. Um Perhaps one of the one of the more interesting things on his uh, list of accomplishments is when Oprah Winfrey was the commencement speaker at Stanford in 2008, she bought 4,500 copies of his book, A Whole New Mind, and gave one to every graduating student saying that it, uh, she said it was a book that all of them should read. So uh, he's a contributing editor for Wired. He's written for the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Washington Post. This is someone you you need to listen to, and uh, he has a lot of insights into motivation and what actually drives us. Let's pick his brain. I um, yeah, I'm sorry. I have a cold, so I sound like I'm. Uh, I should announce for movies in a world. Yeah, no, wow. This, uh, <laughs> yeah, I expect swelling music to come up behind you. <laughs> in a world where experts on behavior discuss motivation. <laughs> 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 um. So yeah, I apologize for that. It's going to sound like I'm uh, affecting something, but that's just that's just nasty vocal cords right there. Um. Uh. First of all, thank you so much for being here. I I love your work. I love your books. Uh. And I love that you have this new show that's about to premiere on National Geographic. Uh, so really, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks, 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 and thanks. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate the kind words. You know, I... Uh, I mean, I, as you, you, you and I, I mean, your listeners don't know the secret conversations we have off air, but, in, <laughs> but, but right before we came on live to millions, or semi-live to millions, um, I was talking about how much I like, uh, how much I like your stuff, particularly, um, the, the book version of the blog, which I think is, I mean, if I were teaching psychology, I would use that in my course. Oh man. Thank you. And, and you know, what's crazy is that the blog is, uh, I mean, your work, I remember watching your stuff around the time that I was, was doing the blog and, uh, I was like, ah, oh, that's exactly what's happening right here. Cause I had a job. I was a journalist. I was an editor. I was working in in the business. And so I already had an income, but I then chose to spend all my free time making this blog because that was really what I wanted, what I wanted to do. Right. And now this is happening. So that's, uh, it's, it's such a fulfillment of what you write about. I love it. Great. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, true. I mean, not to turn this into an echo chamber rather than a podcast, but that was basically my story too. I started out, you know, years and years ago working in politics and what I found, and, you know, as a lot of stuff, including as a political speech writer. And when I realized the moment I realized I had to, or one of the moments that I realized I had to leave that world was that I was like, you know, working late at night, writing magazine stories about, you know, business and behavior for no money. Uh-huh. And I was like, huh, maybe this is what I should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> we're so, uh, we're so fortunate that we, that we found that in the post internet post, everyone knows how to use the internet world so that you can go, you can step right into that, uh, into a, you know, a marketplace for this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, true. Here. That's very true. 
Um, I often wonder what I would have been like if it had been 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And probably it just would have been, you know, me at the copier making pamphlets and handing them out to people and saying. Or maybe or maybe you would have been an, uh, uh, another in a long line of uh, disgruntled semi-alcoholic editors. That's That was my destiny. That was totally yeah. my destiny. <laughs> <laughs> um I want to know uh, about this show, Crowd Control. I've seen one yeah. episode. I've seen one episode, and it was awesome. I loved it, and it's just my kind of show. I mean, like, um, it's uh, it's the kind of show you're like, why don't they make more shows like this? Could you sort of describe uh, the premise of it? Yeah. So what we do is we take problems that are out there in the world. Uh, you know, we take on some big stuff, like you saw in the first episode. We we took on the 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 problem of speeding. That's a real problem, you know, with life and death death consequences. We took on the problem of airline safety, believe it or not. So we take on big problems, but we also take on small problems, things like kids peeing in swimming pools and <laughs> people double dipping guacamole. And then we use um, behavioral science and along with some design and technology, come up with a solution, put it in place in the real world. Turn on our cameras and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of this first season, we've done uh, 45, I think it's the final number, 45 of these kinds of behavior experiments uh, all over the country to try to come up with solutions to the things that, you know, endanger us, but also just make us a little bit miffed. <laughs> well, how, how do you, how do you, if you can say, how do you stop people from double dipping guacamole? Oh, well, we came up. Okay, so you'll love this. You'll like this. I want. I'm going to use this tomorrow. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> so I'll give you because I know your listeners can handle it. The the very complex behavioral theory that undergirds the intervention, and it's basically this: uh, we behave differently in private than in public. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can sometimes get people when, when we know that other people are watching us. Um, we will behave a little bit differently. So there's some great. I'm going to go off on a tangent here, then I'll steer it back. Oh to yeah, the yeah. Main please, point. please, please, please. The the um. Uh, there's, we did another uh, thing in a food court in New Jersey where there was a problem where people didn't return their lunch trays. And there's some great research out of the University of Newcastle in the UK that showed that simply having a pair of eyes in, the, in, in somebody's midst kind of simulates the feeling of being watched and actually improves people's behavior. So, so that's sort of the phenomenon that we're going there. When people you know, feel like they're in public, um, they behave differently and actually usually more ethically, more nobly than they do if they're behind closed doors, um, picking their nose and downloading internet pornography. So, um, so the solution, so that's the, the theory underneath it. So what we did, and here's the, where we got a little bit tricky. We, um, put out kind of a quasi casting call and said, we're doing a new show on dating. Um, and so we got a, invited a bunch of people to do this new show on date, you know, new dating show on TV. Uh, so we invited them in and there was like a little reception out there with food, um, um, you know, guacamole and chips and salsa and chips and vegetable and dip and, and whatnot. And then we monitored to see, you know, if indeed people were double dipping and they were to my <laughs> horror, they were, there were, a, there was a significant amount of double dipping going on. So the question is, you know, how can we stop that? And what we came up with was again, built on this theory of public versus private behavior is a very, very simple what we did is this. We created, we had two bowls of guacamole and we created two different signs. Next to the first bowl, we had a sign that said single dippers. Next to the second bowl, we had a sign that said double dippers. And lo and behold, everybody went to the single dippers. Nobody, we basically eliminated double dipping with that simple little mind trick. That is fantastic. And just, uh, it reminds me of, uh, in the episode that I saw you, you stopped people from 
uh, parking in uh, disabled parking places by just uh, putting a sign up that says, please don't do this. And it had a picture of a person oh. who would actually use that. Oh, yeah, that was, I mean, but that one is, you know, the double dipping one, it's kind of fun. It illustrates a point. I mean, I can, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to see, I'll know, the sh- I'll know that we've done good for the world if people have single dipper and double dipper <laughs> signs at their Super Bowl party. But that one on disabled parking is actually, um, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a really, really good one. Like, that's like good in the sense of effective, but good in the sense of helpful to the world. What we did there was we looked at the problem of people parking in disabled spaces, which when I went down there, we did this in Austin, Texas. When I went down there, I said, like, who does, nobody does that. Uh, I've never parked in a disabled spot. I mean, and it's like, oh my God, we're going to, so, so I went down there to say, okay, first we're going to drive around and try to find people parking in disabled spots. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be driving around the parking lots of Austin for, you know, days, 10 minutes in, we find someone parked in a disabled spot. (laughs) It's unbelievable how often this occurs. And so our solution in this case was to, as you say, to change the signs we had, or to actually to add a new sign to the existing sign, the existing sign had the, that very famous logo of someone in a wheelchair and then the, the, the classic blue color. But beneath it, we put a sign that said, think of me, keep it free. And it had a photograph, as you say, of someone from the Austin area who was in a wheelchair. And that, I mean, that eliminated a parking in disabled spots. Yeah, and, it went to zero. It went, and, it went, yeah, it was amazing. And then we, 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 didn't, we didn't have permission to keep them up all the time. We don't have this in the show. But when the signs were removed two days later, they had a violation. <laughs> um, and, and, what this, and what this sign did, though, which, which I think you know, it's a little bit more substantive and serious than the guacamole one, is that it triggered some degree of, I think it did two things. One, it triggered some degree of empathy. Uh, on the part of the potential violator. The other thing that it did, which I don't think we do enough of in public spaces, is it explained why you have we we have the rule, um, and it, that actually had that actually had a pretty big effect. And, and it's so much so that um, they're now um, based on just the word of this getting out. There are now it's totally cool. Like several cities in Texas that want to roll this out in their disabled parking spaces. That's that's fantastic, and. Um... It's so strange. It's like it, the solution beforehand was always punitive. It was always just give people tickets or uh, find them lots of money. And it, you show in, in the same episode that that's how we handle speeders is that we just give out millions and millions of tickets. Yeah. And uh, and there's just in the show, you you solve that problem by instead of being punitive, being you reward a different kind of behavior. Could you sort of explain what you did there? Yeah, yeah, we. This is an interesting one. We actually did uh, in this in the first episode. We t- we take on we take on speeding. We did an, uh, we took it on again in another episode in a really cool way as well. But here we said, okay, what if we just flip things? Um, there are always fines for doing bad. What if we give people a reward for doing good? So in the first iteration of it, we had this amazing team of people working on the show. I mean, I was just I mean, really fortunate to work with such a great group. And what we did is we we started we ha- we had this little speed gun and we would. And a certain stretch of road is in New Orleans. If we saw people, we had signs, and we saw people driving the speed limit. We said, "Congratulations, you're driving the speed limit," and we waved them down and gave them ten dollars. Um, that did that doesn't scale all that well. Um, and some people just sped by us because they thought they were about to get ripped off. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what we ended up doing, which is an idea that's been used somewhere in Europe, is we created this thing. We created a lottery. We created something called a speed camera lottery. And so people could register for it. And then on a certain day, we put up the typical kind of speed camera, that, that camera connected to a, um, something that tracked their miles per hour and displayed it on a screen. We've all seen those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and any and if you were driving the speed limit or under, it took a picture of your license plate, and then everybody who was following the rules got their name thrown into a hat, and we randomly selected someone to win a hundred bucks. And so what we tried to do was flip things. Uh, instead of rewarding, instead of punishing bad behavior, we offered a reward for good behavior, and that worked pretty well. I mean, we really got people to slow down. Um, there's some question about whether. You know, I don't know what they did a mile later. Um, right, right. But again, what we're trying to do, and this is sort of key, is that, you know, we go through, yeah, I mean, you've written about this as well. I mean, it sort of laces, you know, we use these, you know, uh, shortcuts or heuristics to get our way through life that are often erroneous. And we just kind of go through life oblivious to our surroundings. Mm -hmm. And what we try to do is kind of wake people up, surprise them, shock them, and try to, change their default behaviors for the better. And, you know, neither one of those problems, uh, well, like you did jaywalking, uh, the parking thing, the um, speeding, you know, these aren't really trivial problems, especially like the speeding and jaywalking. You say in the show that 13,000 people a year die just from like speeding accidents and 6,000 yeah. people, 6,000 people die every year from jaywalking. That's a way bigger number than I would have expected. And um, it seems like the idea behind this show is to, is to do something that I, I have harped on forever. I know you have as well. And some many other people who've written about this stuff do too, is that there's all this information. There's all this evidence in the social sciences, the behavioral sciences, and all that evidence out there is ready to be used in the real world to solve lots of everyday problems or solve inconveniences. Why do you think it is that it's so much of, of what we've learned in the social sciences is uh, taking so long to make it into policies and procedures and management and stuff like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure. I think uh, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one is, is that a lot of not all, but um, and a, a lot of scientists, whether they are social scientists or whether they are physical scientists, um, spend you know most of their time talking to each other, most of their time talking to specialists, and as a result, they end up with their own kind of specialized lingo that regular people can't understand. Uh, and there's a certain narrowness that, that gets fostered there. And so that's something that I've seen as a journalist. It, you know, I love talking to academics. I love talking to academics. They're just so into what they do. But one of the things you find is that you know, the, the psychologists don't talk to the economists, okay? And the, the economists certainly don't talk to the chemists, God forbid. You know, that's <laughs> way too far. All right. But even like this, you know, both of them are studying behavior. Social psychologists are studying behavior. Economists are studying behavior, but they rarely talk to each other. But even if you go into the psychology department, you'll find that the social psychologists don't talk to the developmental psychologists. And so it's very siloed and very specialized. And th this really great material is not getting out into, I think because of the structure of academe, mm -hmm. the academy, is, is, it's not getting out into the, uh, into the wider world. The other reason, I think, is that, that's, that's one reason. Another reason would be that some of what these researchers are finding goes against our intuitions um, uh, about how we think the world works. And we don't like to have those intuitions disrupted. Mm -hmm. um, and find it very unsettling. Um, and and um, and the, and and the third thing is that again we um, um, we so much of our behavior is basically on an autopilot setting that it's actually pretty hard to change behavior. Yeah, and um, and I find that um, one thing that comes up so often, and I've, I, you write about this a lot in your in your book Drive, is that uh, a lot of what we think is 
like you you might think as a as a as a new employee fresh out of college that you're working for uh you know a company that has uh, a lot of smart people that have been doing this for a long time that surely they're basing their their <laughs> policies on something that yeah. has been tested and is yeah. and works and and, yeah. and it turns out that many times it's just folklore that's the word that you that you use and I love that that's yeah. that's a good word to pick out not not um you know the status quo it's folklore it's just yeah. uh no one has taken a second to go wait a second is this is this the right way to do this or not? It's not right. Uh, and as you say, you know, a lot of times, not always, a lot of times the answers or at least hints about the answers are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a new skill that you, that you need is the, you know, is to be able to Google, uh, properly so that you, you know, if you want, if you believe something, you can find evidence for it on the internet. There's no problem doing that. It's, right, you, know, you, right, need, right. you need the ability to, you know, uh, judge evidence and decide what has the you know the consensus and and so on and so on and um, surprisingly no one's even taken that first step uh, even um, uh, in your book like um, in Drive you talk about um, <laughs> like I mean you've 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 spent decades studying this writing about it giving lectures on it uh, motivation and um, what's great I think is you know audiences are really eager to have you around and they want to hear what you have to say because I think that everyone who is not in management knows that management is wrong a whole lot oh, yeah. a whole lot of the time absolutely but um and a lot of that is because we've built our workplaces around incentives and punishments or as you as you say carrots and sticks and and yeah. um one of your major messages is that science has been telling us for decades that that's not a really a great way to manage human beings not in every situation um could you sort of elaborate on why that is yeah sure thing yeah the um i mean it, it's a fairly straightforward principle and again it, it comes directly out of you know, uh, half century of, of research in the behavioral sciences is basically this. So uh, if you think about what I call, and, and it, there's, there's some nuance here, you know, sometimes people look at this and say, oh, money doesn't matter. Blah, blah, blah. That's not true. Um, uh, here's a way to look at it. There's a certain kind of reward that we rely on in organizations, schools, even in public policy. And, and psychologists call it a controlling contingent reward. I call it an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. Um, here's what the research shows pretty clearly. If-then rewards are really effective for very simple things with short time horizons. They work really well. Um, we love rewards. They get our attention. They get our attention in a very narrow, focused way. So if you want people to do something really simple, straightforward, follow a recipe you know, with a very short time horizon, then if-then rewards are going to work pretty well. However, if you want people to do something that requires more judgment, more uh, discernment, more creative thinking, more conceptual thinking. If you want it to work over a much over a longer time horizon, if then rewards just aren't very good. And the reason's the same. It's because we love rewards so much they get us to focus uh, in a narrow way. But if you're dealing with a complicated problem, a creative problem, an ambiguous problem, if you're not sure what exactly you want to create, you need to have a very expansive view. And those if then rewards, by their very nature, narrow. And so they're often counterproductive. And so, you know, it's not like you should, one should never use carrots and sticks or if-then rewards. You just should use them where they demonstrably work. And that's for simple short-term tasks. Uh, the trouble is, is that a lot of our work, uh, the, you know, that more and more of us do every day now that software and uh, robots and Bulgarians are doing <laughs> the, the simpler kind of work, is that it is more creative, it is more conceptual, it does require more judgment, it is a little more ambiguous, and so we have this set of motivators 
that are pretty good for you know 19th century work, not bad for 20th century work, but that have largely outlived their usefulness for 21st century work. You know, I bet a, a lot of people listening to this right now, they go into work, they maybe go into a cubicle, they sit there for eight hours a day, and they know that they don't actually need to be going into that building and sitting through all those meetings. Uh, what, why, why do you think it is that so few employers seem to have, uh, have heard this message and are willing to allow to people, allow people to work in that self-directed way? Yeah. I think there's a bunch of reasons. So, uh, um, I mean, one of them is again, the, this more controlling way, you know, it does, it does work for certain kinds of things. And, you know, it does work for a sliver of, or I mean, even not a sliver, maybe a sort of a large sliver of things that people do on the job. Um, this, and I think that the, the, the second reason would be that, um, you know, goes back to inertia and default. It, it's what we've always done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things, I mean, it's a frustrating aspect of human nature. I mean, I was sort of frustrated, you know, at times on the show where we went out into the wilds of human behavior and basically people are just behaving I mean, it's, it's as simple as this. If I do something one way on Wednesday, chances are nearly a hundred percent. I'm going to do it the same way on Thursday. Not because it's smart or the right thing to do. It's just because that's the way I do it. Um, and so, you know, so we're, so we're creatures of habit. We rely on these default behaviors. Then that's another reason. And I think the third reason probably is, I guess, a little bit more um, cynical, which is that, you know, in organizations especially, these kinds of if you do this, then you get that rewards and punishments. They're really easy. They're really easy. And if you really want people to be motivated, um, you have to come up with, you have to try, you have to do things that are actually a little harder, a little more complicated, mm-hmm. where you have to break a sweat as a manager. And so people often will rely on what's easy rather than what's effective. Now, um, I want, before, before we have to part ways, I really want people who may have never heard uh, your fantastic lectures. And please do, if you're listening to this, uh, check out the RSA Animate or the TED Talk. They're both really great stuff. Um, you talk about this MIT study, um, that when you rewarded the high, when you tiered people and you rewarded high performers, yeah. uh, it did something horrible and, uh, something that I totally would not have, uh, I, I first learned about it from you. And ever since then, I have been blown away by this fact. Could you sort of go into a little detail about what happens when you reward high performers in certain situations? Well, in certain situations, and this is really key and, and it's, it's, it's certain situations and it's a certain kind of reward. So this was this was something where they gave people a series of um, uh, this is actually it's a set of nine experiments in all. It was done in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where MIT is. Uh, it was done also in Madurai, India. Uh, it was a group of four researchers, um, one of whom left MIT is now at Duke. And uh, what they did is that they had people do a series of of challenges. So uh, there were some physical things. Um, like throwing a ball through a hoop. There were some cognitive things like, say, alphabetizing something quickly. And then there were more challenging cognitive things like, um, you know, the kind of ideation exercises. And they divided people into three groups. And the only thing that was different about the groups was the amount of reward that was promised to them. So one group, it's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. One group got the, a, a small, was offered a small reward for high performance. The other group was offered a medium reward for high performance, and the third group was offered a large reward for high performance. Okay, so we expect that the group offered the larger reward would do the best, and that's what happened when it was the very simple, the very simple things that didn't require any kind of judgment or creativity. The higher the reward, the better the performance. But uh, once the task called for, once the task reached 
just slightly beyond basic level of cognitive skill, you know, where you how to use your brain in a slightly, slightly more creative way, uh, a larger reward uh, led to poorer performance. So it was exactly upside down. And I think what's interesting about that particular study is that, you know, it's, it goes back to what you were saying before. Like, we were, we've known this for a while, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, if you and I were graduate students in social psychology and we said, I want to do my dissertation on the, uh, the, the, the deleterious effects of if-then rewards on conceptually uh, challenging behavior, your, your dissertation advisor would say, uh, we already know that. We've already done that. You're not going to get a PhD doing that because we already know. It'd be like getting a PhD in physics saying, I think I have this, this theory called gravity about why things don't float <laughs> into the space. You know? right, right. It's like, I'm sorry, it's already settled. We know this. Um, and yet, what's so frustrating is that it hasn't migrated into you know, the rest of the, you know, the, the non-academic world because uh-huh. of, um, you know, I mean, truly, I mean, a lot of the kind of cognitive biases that, that, that you've written about. You know, so if we see somebody who, um, if we see somebody who um, is is good at his or her work um, and has earned a lot of money, we assume that the reason that they're good at their work is because they were offered a lot of money. Yeah, and that's not necessarily the case. No, um, and I was looking uh, at your. Um, I, I watched one of your lectures uh, yesterday to refresh my memory, and I um, I, I looked on. Uh, I have a. I have a plugin on my computer that lets me see comments on Reddit underneath uh, videos. And uh, I know there's a guy in there like he, this is like a recent comment where he was like, I don't understand why my boss doesn't makes me check in for every little thing that I do. Like if I get to work too soon, I get, you know, punished. If I go, if I leave, if I leave to work, if I leave work too early, if I, you know, my lunch, my break, everything has to be clocked in. He's like, I totally like my job. I would, I would work in the way that this guy talks about if they would let me do it. Yeah. Um, and that's amazing to me. Uh, and, uh, and it, it's great. It really does illustrate that, um, I did an episode a while back about, um, about science communicators and how it's very important that we have them in this world. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's important that they're very good. They're not the kind of people who sensationalize things and don't understand what they're talking about, but it's very important that we have people who, who, you know, take the shovel and, you know, dig in in academia and, and dump it out into your daily lives. Um, so that the people who are running the show can, can use these things. Um, and before I, I'll get back, I want to get back to the, uh, show, but I do want to, uh, let you mention the, you know, the meat of this, the, the discovery is that, uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose are really the things that we should be shooting for. If you could just sort of like, uh, give us the, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, overview so, of that. so that's the, yeah, yeah. So it's a great question. So, you know, that's so, so if you, if you, um, now, if you look at the research, what it shows is that these these contingent rewards, you know, are good for some things, not so good for other things, and it, those other things are basically what a lot of people do on the job. So, how do you do it better? And then, and if you look there, you can go back to the science and 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 understand it pretty well. It starts with paying people enough. Um, you got to pay people fairly. If if um, human beings, you know, are obsessed with notions of fairness, so if you and I are doing, you know, sitting side by side in the cubicle, doing the same kind of work with the same level of contribution, same level of experience, and um, you know, I find out that you're getting paid 25% more than I am. I'm demotivated <laughs> because it's, because it's not fair. Um, so you got to pay people fairly. Um, there's a little bit of a paradox that for more creative kind of work, one of the best uses of, of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the work, uh, off the table. 
That is, what you want to do in many cases, if you're doing very routine, algorithmic kind of work, so you are you know, stuffing envelopes, you know, pay people for envelopes. Raise the salience of money. Make them think about a dollar or, well, I'm not going to pay people a dollar an envelope, but you know, think about the, the dime they're going to get every envelope. Um, and they'll stuff a lot of envelopes for you because it's not cognitively challenging. It doesn't require much creativity. Um, but for people to do work that requires you know, a, a greater degree of sophistication, where they have to use their judgment, where they have to come up with creative solutions, where there isn't an algorithm that they just follow, um, you want people thinking about the work. <laughs> and one way to have them think about the work is have them not think about the money. So pay, pe- pay people enough, pay people enough. Once you do that, as you say, it turns out there are three core motivators for enduring performance. There are autonomy, which is we were talking about before, which is essentially self-direction. Do you have some control, some sovereignty over what you do, how you do it, when you do it, who you do it with? Uh, the second one is mastery. That is, you know, are you getting better at something that matters? Are you making progress at something meaningful? And the third one is purpose. Um, you know, do you know like why you're doing what you're doing? Does what you're doing make a contribution? Does it have some kind of impact, even a tiny impact on something? Um, and so, you know, it turns out that for most work, certainly most people, the majority, the vast majority of people who would listen to a podcast, um, you know, the better uh, recipe for sustained and enduring motivation is to pay people enough, pay people well, pay people enough, and then, you know, let them do what they need to do. Help them get better at something that matters and, um, and, and make sure they're plugged into some kind of purpose. That works a lot better. It's definitely so. And it feels so obvious. Look, you know, if, if, it, if this is resonating with any of you, like if this is like, you're like, oh man, this is what I've always thought. Why don't people know this? Definitely get uh, this book, Drive. It is a, it's an important book and uh, buy one for your boss and just sneak it, <laughs> sneak it, just put it on their desk uh, yeah. surreptitiously uh, in, in the night, just put it on their desk and walk away. Um, so uh, what's I love that you've uh, been given this opportunity to take this sort of uh, this thinking about how to motivate people uh, and to get people to do things in their best interest and to change the world for the better and to make it less annoying. And I love that you've been given the opportunity to put this on television. And one of the things uh, in the materials that I, I was handed, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that is going to be great because I've been to a lot of Mardi Gras. Uh, I live very close. Oh. I live very close to New Orleans. Apparently, you've come up with some way to get people to clean the streets for for no money. What did you do? Yeah, so we decided to okay, so so you know one of the things that we so so much of what we're doing is we're trying to, as I keep saying, to change people's default behaviors and and it's it's even harder to do when people are completely wasted as everybody <laughs> is on Bourbon Street right. I discovered right uh, in a really horrific way. <laughs> um, so so, uh, so what we did, so there's a big problem there uh, on Bourbon Street in the trash. Even though there's a trash can on every corner, I mean, it's amazing. People just toss the stuff on the side of the road mm-hmm. or side of the street. And there's this whole, there's also this whole social norm thing going on that we're much more likely to litter in a place that's already littered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there's a little bit of litter, then it can cascade. And so people say, oh, it's fine to litter here. So what we tried to do is, bring the litter down to a reasonable level, you know, a very low level, so that would discourage subsequent littering. And what we did is we used um, uh, a little bit of, we used a little bit of, of fun and, and games. What we did is we constructed this giant trivia trash machine, and so and plopped it right in the middle of the street. And 
it gave people a trivia question and they had to answer A, B, or C. And when they put their trash into, if they put their trash into the right hole, hole A, hole B, hole C, um, they could see whether they got the answer right. And then uh, we upped the game a little bit and we gave out prizes again on the theory that um, for short, simple short-term behavior, which is basically pretty simple to take your, your, um, your 1500 milliliter long bottle of sugared alcohol <laughs> and <laughs> that you've that you've downed and toss it in a garbage can that's pretty simple in short term and so we if they got the question right they got a ticket and they could if they got enough tickets they could trade it in for a cap that said i got trashed on bourbon street <laughs> and um, and um and it worked pretty well and, and and as you say what happened was is that in order to, you had to get enough tickets in order to um to get the, the free cap and so we had people going around looking for extra trash and picking it up themselves in order to answer more questions, and get more tickets. Again, that's one instance that showed you that shows the power of some of these if then rewards because it really narrows people's field of vision. All we wanted them to do was do something really simple, throw out the trash, throw out the trash. And it worked pretty well. We had another instance where we rewrote uh, where, where these kinds of rewards backfired. We went to a facility down in Florida that was training um, air, airline flight attendants. And so we went into this giant simulator where they train flight attendants and we experimented with different ways to reconfigure the in-flight safety instructions. And in one instance, we had, um, we said, uh, here are the in-flight, here are the instructions, please pay attention. There's going to be a quiz and whoever gets everything right on the quiz is going to be entered into a drawing for a hundred dollars or something like that. And what, and then we simulated a crash and got people out tried to get people out. And what happened there is that it didn't work very well because what happened is people were so focused on the prize and getting the answer right that they weren't really thinking about the instructions. Right. They were just thinking about how do I get money? <laughs> and so this thing that's a little bit more cognitively complex, here's a set of instructions about how to evacuate an airplane. This is what I do in this situation. This is what I do in that situation. You know, remembering something with a degree of sophistication and intricacy, um, they were able to do it over the short term to get the answers right on the quiz. But Literally, I mean, literally, like 45 minutes later, when they, we simulated a crash, they had no idea what to do. Meanwhile, when we rewrote safety instructions to explain why you put your tray table up, why you um, put your bag underneath the seat in front of you, and explain the consequences for not doing that in somewhat garish ways, uh, we had incredible retention and a very, very successful evacuation. That is so awesome. And, you know, I hope that I love this is great. This show is going to be on national television. It's going to go out to, you know, millions of people. I hope it like really helps, you know, change the world for real. And like, um, and gives at least, you know, gives people the opportunity to understand that behavior is malleable, that crowds are malleable, that people, uh, we, things aren't just the way they are. We don't have to just depend on all that folklore. Like we were talking about earlier. Right. Uh, right. So I hope that it has that greater change. Um, it, pre it premieres uh, November 24th on National Geographic Channel. Uh, and I think it's going to do really well. And I think it's... Uh, I hope so. Thanks. I, yeah. Uh, 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Eastern and again at 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Pacific. So um, if um, for all for if you're a Monday Night Football fan, uh, watch anyway, because nothing happens. <laughs> the first, nothing happens in the first quarter anyway. Right. Um, I think people are going to be interested in all the stuff that you do, your books, uh, your your lectures, uh, this TV show. If people wanted to keep up with the empire of uh, Daniel Pink, how, <laughs> yeah. how would they do that? Well, a monumental task, that is. Uh, they would have to do something very complicated, like go to www.danpink.com uh, or um, follow me on Twitter at, uh, at Daniel Pink. All right. Well, look, 
Thank you so much for coming on. I really hope that you have great success with this. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. If you're a professional these days, no matter what it is that you're doing, no matter what kind of job that you have, you need to stay up to date on the latest software, on the latest uh, information about the devices that you use. And you don't want to go running around YouTube and other places on the Internet hoping that maybe you will find someone who knows what they're talking about. You want to go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A dot com. It's an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. You can instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, and more. And right now, you can go to lynda.com slash smart and get seven days of this service for free. That's right. A whole week of playing around with lynda.com to see if this works for you. And you will, of course, be like, oh, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen because they have Fresh content, new courses added daily. Uh, They work with industry experts and software companies to provide timely training, sometimes on the same day that new versions or releases hit the market, so you're always up to speed. All the courses are produced at the highest quality, so they're not homemade videos, they're not something you will find on YouTube, and the courses are broken into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own pace and learn from start to finish or just find a quick answer. The tools include searchable transcripts, playlists, certificates of course completion, which you can publish to your LinkedIn profile, and whether you're a beginner or advanced, Linda has courses for all experience levels, so you can start at the very beginning, or if you know what you're talking about, you know what you've done, you know how to work this thing, you just need to find out this little trick, you need to understand, oh, I have never seen this before, you can go to the experience level courses and learn more about how to really dig in and understand the thing that you're trying to understand. If you're on the go, they have mobile apps and you can use iPad, iPhone, Android, whatever you need. And all this comes at one low monthly price of $25. And that gives you unlimited access to 100,000 video tutorials, 100,000 videos. And I'm telling you, these are really well done. I've taken uh, one on DSLR cameras, one on, um, uh, user interfaces and one on uh, audio engineering already. And uh, they're great because they're very detailed. The person teaching it is an expert in every regard. And it's uh, it's something you can just move around inside of and it's it get as technical as you want or just get the broad understanding, whatever you need and search through the transcripts. It's so cool, guys. And right now, your, your organization, your business, your company, or just you as an individual, you can go to lynda.com slash smart and get seven days of this for free. I mean, you can just gorge yourself on this buffet of knowledge and uh, take one, two, three or four courses in that period of time and see what you think or just bounce around the whole network and play this and that. It's a really cool offer. Try it out. Lynda.com slash smart. If you want to make a website, there's a website that makes websites on the internet and it's called Squarespace and Squarespace makes it easy and simple and when you make a, a, a website with Squarespace, that website will be elegant and beautiful and modern and cool and easy to mess with and update. And if you need support, they have 24-7 support via live chat and email. And that means that you can, if you have any problems whatsoever making it or you have an idea that's crazy, like I wonder if I could go on Photoshop and then make this thing in After Effects and then throw it in, they will tell you how to make that work. They will help you make the website that you want. And here's the great thing. They've just updated their platform to Squarespace 7. So it was already really cool and easy. Now it is easier and cooler. It has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images, 
and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature that they're calling Cover Pages. And you can try all of this at squarespace.com and get 10% off at checkout by entering the offer code less dumb. I've built several websites with Squarespace and I've helped other people do that too. I usually tell people when they say, I want to build a website. Uh, what, what should I do? I say, go to Squarespace. That's where you get started. Learn everything you can about building stuff. If you need help or you know someone who is uh, really savvy with web design, just go ahead and do the Squarespace thing and bring them in because they'll be able to use all those tools, talk to support and make the coolest website ever. Now, one of these new features in Squarespace 7, Getty Images, 40 million high quality photos, $10 an image. Uh, let me tell you something. I've, I've, when it comes to like websites and lectures and stuff, I've paid $86 for one image before just to show someone for three seconds in a slideshow. So that's a great deal. Go to squarespace.com slash seven, learn more, and you still get all the other great things that you've always been able to get at Squarespace. $8 a month and a free domain name if you do Squarespace for a year. Responsive design, it scales, it looks like the website you want it to be on every device. And e-commerce, every website comes with a free online store if that's what you want to do with it, or if you want to do something like that later on down the road. So start a trial, no credit card required, build your website today, and when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code less dumb at checkout and you will get 10% off your first purchase and it will show your support for this podcast. We certainly thank Squarespace for their continued support and their slogan. It really is true. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. And now we return to our program. starts with the letter C. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for On cookie. each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And let me tell you, I have a lot of these recipes saved up. And uh, so if you send one in and you're like, why didn't you make it? And it's already been like three or four months. I promise you, every single one of these cookies will be cooked and they will be eaten by me. And uh, I will love them and enjoy them. And there's you, some of the things that I've got coming up are just crazy. And some of them are very simple. But today it's a Thanksgiving themed cookie and it is almost Thanksgiving when I'm recording this. Uh, and you know, if you're if you're not from the United States, Thanksgiving is a holiday uh, which, which in which we, we gather with our family and we uh, avoid arguments or we get into arguments on purpose. And basically everything that you ever heard about at You Are Not So Smart and in both the books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Not Less Dumb, uh, every one of these, uh, these biases and weird ways that people communicate come right out and do battle over confections and carbs and meats and assorted delicious victuals that have been in the family for years and years. So if you've learned anything listening to You Are Not So Smart, the podcast or reading the books uh, or, the, or the blog, 
don't get into these arguments. Do not have an argument with your dad or your mom or your grandfather about politics or about the president or about the prime minister or about the latest policy or the latest things happening in the news or what's happening on your favorite news network. Don't do it. You're not going to sway anyone. You're just going to make people not like you and you're going to make yourself not like them and you're going to make Thanksgiving taste bad. And that's the worst thing that could happen. And, uh, you know, actually what could likely happen is you could elicit the backfire effect, which will just make uh, whatever opinion that people had going into the argument, they will believe that even more strongly after the argument. And that is something that usually happens when people get into stupid political discussions that don't change world affairs and just make families go, <sighs> that's what happens. So instead, what I want you to do is make these cookies and eat them and think about how much you love your family. And these cookies are called pumpkin pie snickerdoodles. They come from Marshall Schott, and he is a clinical psychologist who wrote in his email that these are a delicious autumnal confection my wife makes only annually. And I figured it was fitting given the season. Oh, you're right about that, Marshall Schott, because they are amazing. My wife made these yesterday, and uh, we actually made a giant batch of these that we're taking to our um, we have a, a Thanksgiving thing that we do with our friends every year and we're doing that. And, uh, we're taking this giant batch of these cookies. Oh boy. They made the house smell wonderful. It became this giant hug of love. And I was inside of that hug going mm, pumpkin pie. And, um, <laughs> he also writes in the email that he, he, uh, he loved the extinction burst episode and he hopes that in the future we can do episodes about parenting, more things about parenting because extinction burst was mentioned in a parenting technique. Yes, we will definitely do that. Thank you. Uh, so what's in these uh, these snickerdoodles? He says that they are um, butter and granulated sugar, flour, cream of tartar, uh, baking soda, salt, pumpkin pie spice, eggs, vanilla, pumpkin puree, uh, granulated sugar, cinnamon, uh, and other spices that are pumpkin pie related. And oh boy, they're so they're so light and airy. I feel like if I if I don't hold onto this cookie tightly enough, it will float out of my hand and float all the way up into heaven where it will delight the angels. Oh, Marshall Shot, what have you done? You can, um, and if you pinch these apart, they come apart like, um, like slow and bread-like. It's, uh, it's not a crunchy cookie. It's the softest soft cookie I have ever actually seen. I promise you. And, um, oh man, I cannot wait. My mouth is watering. Here we go. Thanksgiving pumpkin pie snickerdoodles from Paul Shot, the clinical psychologist. Here we go. The new world brings riches, riches like cookies. Mm, I hope I don't get dysentery this year. Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> ma'am. So, you know, this pumpkin pie spice thing is everywhere. Like there's it's like that time of year where like everything is flavored as pumpkin pie spice. And I'm not complaining. But, you know, a lot of time, you know, I mean, eventually, like, they're going to have, like, pumpkin pie pizza or something. And, and uh, if they have that, email me immediately. I want to know if that really exists. But they, uh, they, the thing is, it's become a flavor, kind of like, uh, you know, grape flavor. And so, like, grape flavor does not taste like grapes. It, it, it's its own thing. It's a totally new thing in the universe called grape flavor. It does not taste like any real organic substance. And a lot of the time, the pumpkin pie stuff tastes like that too. Like there's a pumpkin pie flavor. And then there's like the actual flavor of pumpkin pie. These cookies, 
tastes like actual pumpkin pie. It doesn't make any sense. I feel like I'm a synesthete. I have synesthesia. I can hear colors. I can, I can, um, I can see sounds and I can eat cookies, but taste pumpkin pie. Oh, it's so good. It's so, so good. It's like, it's so airy and like, um, and, and light and chewy that you, the cookie itself almost disappears and there's nothing but the flavor. Oh, it's great. It's great. I give you thanks. Oh, Marshall shot the clinical psychologist. Tell your wife, these are amazing. And, uh, tell her that I personally thank you. My wife thanks you. All of my friends are going to thank you soon because we're about to take these to a Thanksgiving event where everyone is going to stand there and go, what? This tastes like pumpkin pie. Oh, thank you so much. Let's talk about some, some self-delusion news now. This news comes from San Francisco State University, and it sort of ties into the office working world related themes that we have going in this episode. And uh, the press release that comes from San Francisco State is titled Office Stress Workers May Wait Before Acting It Out. And you can find this at news.sfsu.edu. And um, the, the research here, it's headed up by uh, organizational psychologist Kevin Eshelman. And he says that many employees will wait a very long time, weeks or months, before they engage in what he calls counterproductive work behaviors. And that could be taking long lunches or um, going out and doing errand, errands for hours, stealing office supplies. Um, generally, just you know, taking advantage of the company in ways they feel that they deserve. Um, and this behavior doesn't always happen right after the the thing that is encouraging it the antecedent to the behavior is uh maybe something that's very salient to everyone it could be something like uh you know the ball a new boss or a new policy or uh, they've been slighted in some way but employees generally do not uh act out and do not um engage in the behavior that's the result of that right away it's uh it's something that happens months or weeks after a stressful change as he calls it some of those stressful changes that he uh, that they bring up in this uh, press release are, uh, of course, a new boss who has different policies or the company has changed the way they do something. Uh, maybe there's a more demanding workload. Uh, maybe there's something uh, like uh, it's, it's the beginning of what would be called the busy season, whatever that would be in the work that you do, or, or some other dramatic change in the workplace. Uh, Kevin Eshelman says, quote, in the press release, people don't just respond immediately with these deviant behaviors. They may also have a delayed response that isn't caught by the organization. And so the thing that, that you should recognize here is that probably a lot of workplaces, a lot of companies, they gauge how well a new policy is working out or, or a new decision or whatever um, by what happens directly afterward. But you should really shift your focus to weeks and months later and see if there is some sort of pattern emerging among the workplace that could be the result of something that happened weeks or months before not something that happened immediately, but right before you see the changes in uh, work behavior. And you, you, whenever you do something dramatic inside the workplace, you should pay attention to what is happening with your workers and, and, uh, or with your, you know, your fellow employees, not just right then, but you should take, pay attention to what's going to happen a couple months out. The researchers, they say in this uh, press release that it's well understood in organizational psychology that workplace stress will lead to counterproductive work behaviors. People will act out uh, when they're disgruntled in some way. And so that's well understood. 
But this new research shows that uh, that acting out may take place. It's a, there might be a time delay. There's a buffer. And uh, the researchers, um, they say, according to Eshelman, he says, quote, maybe you don't have the opportunity to engage in these deviant behaviors right away, or you want to wait until no one's around, or maybe you think you can cope, but you realize after, you know, down the road that you can't cope, and that's when you begin to engage uh, in these behaviors. And uh, he's, the really interesting part of the research is that um, they found that people who are considered more agreeable and cooperative, as they write in the press release, good-natured and trusting of the organization, or more conscientious, these are the people who uh, tend to be the ones who engage in that counterproductive behavior, um, not initially, but down the road. So they're the ones who buffer it, who time delay it. And the reason, he says, is because uh, those workers tend to have more outlets and more uh, resources that allow them to cope with that increased stress. But And so it takes longer for them to buckle, and then they will buckle later on. And uh, it may not be something that is understood by the people who work with them or the people who are managers of the, of, the, or, of the organization. They may not understand why now. Why is this happening now? But apparently there's an there's a initial delay for some people. So uh, he says, this is a quote from the press release, companies should take care to tailor programs to help employees deal with stress since the research shows personality can complicate how and when employees respond. And that comes from research. The research, uh, uh, the name of the paper, if you want to read the actual paper is the moderating effects of personality on the relationship between change in work stressors and change in counterproductive work behaviors by Kevin Eshelman, Nathan Bowling, and David Lewis. That was published October 3rd in the journal of occupational and organizational psychology. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboing.net. And for all the previous episodes of You Are Not So Smart's podcast, you can go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find links to everything that we talked about in today's episode. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. The rest of the music... That is by Drew Garraway. You can send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of the book. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, Google+. And on Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. And I'm at David McCraney. If you like these, uh, these topics, buy the books. You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, which just came out in paperback. Please, make those cookies and don't argue at Thanksgiving. but for rolling doobies. You're gonna be doing a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river.